Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. We are in the fourth week of Advent, the home stretch now, just a few days before Christmas. But are you ready? Are you ready spiritually to enter into this mystery? I want to help you. I want to help you in this podcast today to prepare your mind and your heart to deeply enter into the mystery of Christ's birth and these beautiful stories we encounter from Scripture about the way Jesus entered this world. Now, sometimes I think we as Christians, however, we can, we can take this story for granted. I think we're sometimes almost too familiar with these stories. What do I mean? I mean, you know, the idea of a baby laid in a main a star in the sky, angels appearing to shepherds, magi showing up. You know, many of us, we've heard these stories from our childhood. Year after year after year, we sing the story in various Christmas carols. We see them in Christmas pageants. We see them in Christmas cards and nativity sets. They don't grab our attention because we're so familiar, almost too familiar with these stories. But what if you had never heard these stories before? What if you were encountering these stories from the Gospels for the very first time? Imagine being a Jew in the first century, longing for the coming of the Messiah. And imagine that you hear these stories about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. What would these stories have meant to you? That's what I want to take a look at here in today's podcast. I want to bring you right into that world of Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, this is just one short aspect of the story. There's a lot more we could look at, but I want to take a look at Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and I want you to consider what this would have meant for a Jew in the first century, what the story would have meant to them. Now, the story opens up and it says, in, the days, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. Now, again, we're very familiar with this idea that there was a census. And we could think, oh yeah, there's a census. So the Roman government's counting people. And, you know, in the United States, we do a census every 10 years too. So this is just, you know, normal process for a government. That's not what this is about. In fact, Luke's gospel is going to go on and talk about that this is the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor. It's going to talk about how Joseph went up to be enrolled because he's of the house of David. He's going to have to go to Bethlehem to be enrolled. Four times that word is used, enrolled, 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 enrolled. Luke gives us more information about this enrollment, this registration, this census that the Roman governor is putting on. He gives us more information about the census than he does the birth of Jesus itself. That's fascinating. Now, what would this census mean? Uh, this, this wasn't just to count people. This was for taxation, to tax the people more efficiently. This was to exploit the people. That's the context of Jesus's birth here, that Jesus is, is going to end up being born in Bethlehem by the power of the Roman government, forcing Joseph to go down to Bethlehem. And, and, and it's the context of this exploitation that he's going to be counted. Now, we're going to take a look at this, though, and see that the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, uh, it is because of Caesar. It is because of this great decree, this census. 
But in the end, we're going to see that there's a more powerful force behind this, and that's God. God will use the wicked ways of this world. Uh, Not that he wants the wickedness, but he can turn those to good. And he's going to do that certainly on the cross, right? The most evil act in history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, is going to be turned to the source of our salvation. Uh, Similarly, right here at the beginning of Christ's life, uh, there's this wicked census forcing people to move and to be counted, to be exploited by the Roman government. One of those families on the move is Mary and Joseph's, and and they're going to go to Bethlehem. But the irony is this. God's the one really in charge here because God will use this census to get Jesus to be born in the city that was prophesied, the city of Bethlehem, way back in Micah. The book of Micah, the Old Testament prophet foretold in Micah chapter 5 that there would be a new ruler coming out of Bethlehem, a new ruler of the people, and his kingdom was going to extend its reign to the ends of the earth. So there's this great prophecy about the coming of a great king. He would come and be born in Bethlehem, this new ruler that would come. And Jesus is that king. Just like David, by the way, David was born in Bethlehem, and he's the founder of the the great divinic dynasty, and that was the dynasty that was going to last forever. And, And there's hopes for a new son of David to come in the time of Jesus. And where is Jesus born? In the same city as David. How fitting, because Jesus is the true son of David. He's the new king. He is the great Messiah, the one that will bring all the promises about the Davidic kingdom to their ultimate fulfillment. So the first point we want to take away from this story of Jesus's birth is Luke's gospel spends more time telling us about the enrollment, the census, than he does the birth. And he's doing that to show Jesus's birth comes under the con in the context of this Roman oppression of the Jewish people. And yet, God will use that to bring Jesus to the city that he needs to be born in, the city of prophecy, the city of Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5. Now, Another point I want to draw our attention to is where was actually Jesus born in Bethlehem? What was the setting uh, in which he was born? Many of us might just assume, oh, he was born in a stable, right? Because that's what my nativity set shows. He's born in a stable. I go to my parish church and there's a stable for the nativity set. So surely he was born in a stable. But did you know the Bible doesn't say that? The Bible doesn't say anything about a stable explicitly. Uh, There's some clues here that might lead one to conclude that Jesus was born in a stable, but I want you to be aware that there's other possibilities. In fact, some other possibilities that are very strong in our tradition going all the way back to the early centuries of Christianity. Uh, Let's take a look at the different possibilities for where Jesus was born. Uh, The Bible tells us simply this basic uh, outline of what happened. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, that very first point, there's no place for them in the inn. According to one view, Mary and Joseph show up in Bethlehem. They go to the local Motel 6, if you will, uh, some local inn, and there's, there's no vacancy there. They're just, you know, maybe there's they're too many travelers coming into town to be counted in the census, and uh, there's no room for them in the inn. And so they go to a place where there must there's a manger. So a manger is a feeding trough for the animals, so that would indicate that there's some animals around, and, and some people conclude, well, there's no room for them, and they couldn't get a room at the hotel, but maybe the innkeeper said, hey, you know, you could stay out in the stable where, where the our, tra- our our guests are keeping their animals, and maybe you can 
give birth to the baby there. So that that's one common view is that Jesus was born in a stable. They went to the inn. The Holy Family went to the inn. There's no room there. And so they went to the stable of the inn where the animals were kept and they laid the baby Jesus in a manger. Now, this view is possible. Uh, there's uh, some some people argue that there's a reference to a traveler's inn outside of Bethlehem, and maybe that's where Mary and Joseph went. But I want you to be aware of a few other possibilities. First of all, think about this. If Joseph has to go to his hometown to be counted, he's going to Bethlehem because this is his his ancestral town. This is where his relatives presumably are. And so you would expect if Jesus, if Joseph was going to go back to his hometown, who would he stay with? He's probably going to stay with his family. He's not going to go check in at the Hampton Inn in Bethlehem. He's, he's going to go stay with family. That's what one might expect. I want you to be aware that, that language in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, there was no place for them in the inn. The word for inn in Greek there that Luke uses doesn't mean hotel. It's a Greek word, katalima. It doesn't mean hotel. It doesn't mean motel. It doesn't mean inn. It just means lodging place, a place to rest, a place to, to stay. And so that it could be a hotel. It could be a guest room. It could be a house. Uh, so it's just a place for, for resting, a place to stay. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean inn. Uh, in fact, we see in the New Testament this word used other times to describe uh, other kinds of lodging places that are not like hotels. So uh, if if you're Joseph and you're going back to visit your ancestors, you, you're probably not going to go to a hotel. Maybe you'd stay with your family. Uh, and the idea, according to a, a second possible interpretation, is that Mary and Joseph show up at Joseph's relatives and typical uh, houses in the first century there in Bethlehem would have had two levels. There was a lower level where the animals were kept, and then there was a raised level, raised up platform area where uh, the, the family would dwell. And so according to this view, there's no room for them in the catalima, meaning in the, the dwelling place where, where you would normally sleep. There's no room for them there, probably because it's too crowded. And so, so they, they give birth to Jesus down on that lower level where the animals are kept. And you might understand maybe even from Mary's point of view, wanting a little more a discreet place to give birth to a child, not wanting to do it where all the other relatives are hanging out at night. And so she does it uh, in the lower level by where the where the animals are. And that's where and they take the baby and lay him in the manger. And so that's another very possible view uh, that we could that we could consider. But the view that I'm probably most convinced by, the one that's the oldest view, and you may have heard this before, is that Jesus was born in a cave. Jesus was born in a cave. We know that around Bethlehem, there's a network of caves, uh, and those caves made for dwelling places for people who are poor, poor peasants, poor shepherds. Uh, in fact, I was just recently in Bethlehem leading my Holy Land pilgrimage, and uh, we, were, we were blessed to be able to go down into one of those caves and take a look at what it might look like uh, where Jesus was born. Uh, the reason I think this is very strong is that we know that there was a basilica that stands there to this date uh, that was built by Constantine, and it was built uh, to commemorate the place where pilgrims were reverencing the birth of Jesus, and this this was built over a series of caves. Uh, and so the earliest tradition, going back to the first couple centuries of Christianity, and if you ask the locals in Bethlehem, they'll tell you the same thing, Jesus was born in a cave. Uh, whatever the case may be, whether it was a stable, whether it was 
just the the a house uh, in the lower level where the animals were kept, not in the cat dilemma. Uh, or if it was in the cave scenario, the idea here is that there's no room for them in the cat dilemma, the portion of the cave where the, the family would dwell. Instead, they went to the part of the cave dwelling where the animals resided. Whatever the case may be, what, one thing I think is very clear is that Jesus entered this world with great poverty in austere conditions. And this would have been very hard for Mary and Joseph, who who knew that this child was the holy son of God, the great Messiah, the long-awaited prophesied one. And, and to see their child enter in the world this day would be very difficult. So Jesus enters into the world in, in this, this, this these most austere conditions. But yet, the fact that he's laid in a manger, and this will be my last point I want to draw out for you, I think that alone has some great significance. You see, uh, a, a manger is a feeding trough for the animals, and some of the church fathers saw profound Eucharistic imagery in this. Eucharistic imagery, how so? Well, first of all, the, the, the name Bethlehem, the city in which Jesus is born, Bethlehem means house of bread, house of bread. So some people see Eucharistic imagery there, that the Holy Son of God entered our world, was made manifest in a town called House of Bread. And he continues to make his presence manifest to us in the Eucharist at every Mass. So they make that connection. But I want to turn to someone like St. Cyril of Jerusalem that saw profound symbolism in Jesus being laid in a manger. He's laid in a manger, and that's where the animals would go for their food. And St. Cyril of Jerusalem said that we become like the animals. We become animals when, when like the animals when we sin. You know, we're, we are animals, but we're more than that. We're rational animals. We're animals with souls. We have a, we're made in the image and likeness of God. So we're made to live a higher level of life. But when we give in to our passions and our appetites, then it's like we're living like animals. But we go to the manger like the animals go to the manger. We go to Jesus who offers us his very body and blood in the Eucharist. He's our spiritual food and he can change us and heal us. That's what St. Cyril of of Alexandria said uh, about the Eucharistic symbolism of Jesus being laid in a manger. So that's something we can think about as we kneel before the manger on Christmas day and in the Christmas season, we'll see Mary and Joseph leaning over, but we may see those animals in the background And they're there, not just for a touching little point, oh, there's some cute little animals there, but maybe to remind us, hey, let's live more like Mary and Joseph, and let's not live like the animals. But Jesus still loves us when we fall into sin, and he wants to feed us, and he comes and lowers himself to us, to meet us where we're at, even becoming a baby and being laid in a manger, symbolizing how he wants to feed us and heal us through the gift of himself, lowering himself even further, coming to us under the appearance of bread and wine in the Holy Eucharist. Jesus, we receive him in Holy Communion, and he can change us. He's our spiritual food. So, a lot of things we could think about here, but isn't isn't that fun to go into the nativity story and try to take a look at it uh, uh, through the lenses of a first century Jew or through the lenses of the early Christians and not just take it for granted? That's what we want to do this Christmas season. So please know that you'll be in my prayers as we enter the Christmas season. Please pray for me and my family. And uh, if you want to follow me, you can follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Reach out to me there if you have any questions or you can reach out to me on my website as well. Uh, that's edwardsree.com. May you have a very blessed Christmas. God bless you.